Okay, we're going through 1 Samuel, so let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. And we're going to do this a little differently this morning. We're, I'm going to go through it um, almost verse by verse and make some comments, and then we'll explore the meaning of this in the end. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Jesus, I want to thank you um, that you're here with us, and I am begging you, pleading with you to lead us through this scripture, to lead us through this passage to exalt your name, to help us follow this passage wherever it may lead, knowing it leads to you. That's what you said. It's all about you. So would you show us that this morning? Thank you for this incredible story. Lord, I'm not worthy. But Lord, I pray that you'd use me. I'm worthy in you. And I'm so grateful. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 25. Then Samuel died. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Um, Samuel was an incredible man. Let me, let me just pause for a second and spend a little bit of time on Samuel. Um, Samuel, if you remember, he was dedicated to the Lord before he was even conceived. And as soon as he was weaned, he was dropped off at the temple so that he could serve the Lord continually, day and night. He was raised up under a corrupt uh, spiritual leadership system with Eli and his two sons. You remember his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were corrupt and abusive and hurting people? Well, Samuel right underneath their noses, was being mentored by God to take over the leadership of the nation. He faithfully judged the nation of Israel. He anointed two kings of Israel. And he was able to say with complete sincerity that he had led the nation perfectly. If you want to go and read his final speech to the nation, it's phenomenal. He calls the whole group out publicly and says, if I've done anything to anybody, say it now. And of course, you know, the thousands of people there remained quietly. I don't know anybody else on the planet that could say, you know, that could be that bold to say, if anybody knows any dirt on me, say it. And no one would say anything. Samuel was just was upright. And it's nice to see that all of Israel mourned for him because there were times that they didn't appreciate him very much. <laughs> he was a guy that spoke the word of God boldly, whether it was popular or not. And in that way, he led the nation uh, faithfully. But it's interesting here, what interests me is that the writer only dedicates one, one verse to his death. Such an incredible, momentous figure. Um, in fact, if you notice the, the point of this, of the writer even mentioning it and being so brief, it says, then Samuel died. And then if you read the next sentence, and David arose. And you see there's a baton that's being passed off here. David is being raised up himself under another corrupt leadership regime. And Saul, it's, a, it's happening again. And God is raising David up to take a, a leadership of the nation and to, to really bring the nation back spiritually, spiritually to God. And I think it's important that, and I think it's, it's awesome, that the author spends such little time finishing up Samuel's life, even though we are going to meet him again in a really interesting way in, in chapter 28. But he talks about his death very, very slightly, I think, because the life and the work and the power of Samuel go outlive Samuel. They go beyond him. This is what we refer to as a legacy. He has the work that he has done is transcendent work. It's eternal work. And it continues on through David. That's the idea. And in that way, the Bible is really beautiful to say that, okay, God uses people, but people go away. And God's kingdom is not thwarted because of that. It keeps going. Um, a lot of times we make ourselves too big. You know, if I, don't, if I don't do this, then the whole church will collapse, or this won't happen, or that won't happen. no. We can take the, the load off of our shoulders and go, you know, God is faithful. He's the one working in the world. And we, as we just sang this morning, um, only a moment to live this life. We're like shooting stars burning up the night. 
till heaven opens. And, and you know, we're, our, we're like a vapor. We're here and we're gone. But God's work remains. So the point is that Samuel's work is transcendent and continues after he's expired. And David is growing up under this corrupt leadership just like Samuel did. And the work of God is never dependent on man. Thank God for that. It's very reassuring. David arose. God's work begins with one man and, but never ends with one man. So let's get into our story in verse, in verse two. Now there was a man named Moan, uh, or a man in Moan, excuse me, whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Here we come upon one of the most, I think, beautiful stories in the book of 1 Samuel, and we've got a lot to learn from it. Normally, if you've noticed our format, we'll read the whole section of Scripture, and then we'll kind of, I'll show you kind of the load-bearing beams in the Scripture, and we'll go from there. This is, I think, much better of a way to format through this is to read it kind of verse by verse and go through. Um, And one thing to notice is we're in the middle of talking about Saul and David, And this crazy pursuit for David's life, he's on the run. And then suddenly, in chapter 25, we're introduced to this man named Nabal and his wife, Abigail. What do we know about these two? Let's start with that. What do we know about Nabal? Well, from the text, we know that he's married. From the text, we know that he was based in a place called Maon, which is um, in the western foothills of Judah. But he did business in, in Carmel. He was shearing sheep. His sheep was his business, which means at this point it's harvest time for them. And harvest means it was a time of great joy and great celebration. You worked hard all year and now it was time to get paid, basically. This was, this was your big paycheck that would last you, hopefully, the rest, the, the rest of the year. It was kind of like um, Alaska fishing. You go out there for a season and you gather this huge paycheck and it lasts you throughout the entire off-season. Um, and primarily because of this, because it was a very um, uh, God-fearing society, they attributed their wealth to God. So they would do this religious celebration. They would come together, they would gather, especially if it was agriculture, but also in shearing their sheep. They would gather in, they would get paid, and they would thank God for his goodness, and they were expected to be generous. Everyone was very generous at this time. Because their hearts were merry and their hearts were light. From the Bible's perspective, let me just give you a normal, uh, kind of a, a general theme. From the Bible's perspective, wealth and blessing should generate a generous spirit. That's the idea. It's, it generates generosity. The more one receives and understands that their blessings come from God and come from Him, uh, the more one wants to give and be a conduit of those resources to society. That's kind of the general pattern. We've lost that uh, because of American culture. We are kind of a, we, we like to think that we're the ones that go out there and because of our own, the sweat of our own brow and our own doing and ingenuity, we bring in money for our families and therefore we like, we, we, there's kind of a, um, a fruit of hoarding, of building up, of amassing your own riches for your own empire type of a thing. The Bible, that's kind of an alien concept in the Bible, except when we see a guy like Nabal. And Nabal was very wealthy. Back then, they measured worth by how many herds they had. And for him to have 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats was extremely impressive. He was a very successful businessman. And he was worth a lot of money. Um, Biblically, there are a few ways that people can be rich. There's a few um, contexts in which that that idea is spoken. Nabal was rich materially. That's one way. He had a lot of herds and tents. And he he had a lot of things, a lot of whatever he had. But you can also be rich in what you do, according to the Bible. 
You know, you can be rich in terms of your fame or being well-known for a craft or being well-known for your artisanship and those types of things. Um, You can also be rich in knowledge, according to the Bible. Um, You can know a lot of things and be very wise and smart or talented, have a certain skill. And finally, and I think this is the best way to be rich, finally, you can be rich in character, which doesn't deal with how much you know, but it deals with what you are, um, the character of your heart, or how much, it's not measured by how much stuff you have, but who you are in your soul, what your identity is, and what your, what your non-negotiables are. Uh, when I think of non-negotiable, when we talk about, when the Bible talks about character, it's referring to the heart. And when we talk about the heart in America or in the Western world, we usually think of emotions, like I love you with all my heart type of a thing. Well, the Bible, you need to understand, the Bible has a lot to say about emotions. Emotions are very important in the Bible. But the heart's kind of a separate category. It is the volitional center of your soul. It's the, it's, it's the things that you've decided that you will be and the things that you decided you will not be, those types of things. Um, I always think what helps me parse this out or what are the things that you will even deny your emotions because you've decided this is not the type of person I'm going to be even if you want to do something right Um, a a lot of times we confuse um, a character trait with the emotions that are attached to those character traits so for example um, I want to be I want love or I want peace let's go with peace well, the reality is, if you are, are you searching for the condition of peace or are you, are you searching for the emotion of peacefulness? Because if you go for the emotion of peacefulness, you'll never actually uh, experience peace. Because a lot of times, in order to get peace, to act according to peace, you've got to break something. You've got to discipline. Um, for example, I love my son but sometimes he does not feel loved by me when I'm disciplining him, but I'm acting on the condition of my love for him, not the feeling of my love for him, the condition of that love for him, and I'm hoping the feelings will follow. The feelings are good, but sometimes, but primarily, I'm acting from the condition and not the feeling. Does that make sense? Are you following me with that? We, we, we gotta make, so character, sometimes we think we have good character when we feel a certain way, not necessarily true. Character is what we do. It's those non-negotiables. Um, I always think, has anybody ever seen the show John Adams, the HBO series John Adams? No? Okay. Well, there's a scene. It doesn't spoil it. This is history, by the way. It's already spoiled. But there's a scene where uh, John Quincy Adams, John Adams' son, um, gives uh, his younger brother Thomas a hefty amount of money to invest into the stock market. Um, the stock market's a relatively new and very controversial issue at this time. Um, you know, John Adams thinks that speculation's a bad thing. We shouldn't be doing this. So they kind of behind their dad's back because he's a very strong, opinionated person. He's the president of the United States. So everything they do is, you know, don't tarnish our family name type of a thing. Well, John Quincy gives him this money and Thomas, who's this kind of reckless, wild spirit, says, it's in good hands, don't worry about it, you're going to become rich. Well, he squanders all of his brother's money, and um, he ends up kind of this vagabond, this, this pariah out on the streets, and he, he, um, he really becomes uh, a street person. And there's this scene where finally John, President John Adams directs his carriage to go find his son. And he goes to the, this very poor um, slum part of the city and he's looking for his son and he's, you know, he's dressed in the finest, he's definitely of a higher class and he's kind of walking through this alley and he finds his son there, this kind of homeless uh, wreck. And John Adams is so overcome with grief and so angry, he says to his son, I disown you. He says, you're no longer my son. I'll never speak to you again. And in the show, this is such a huge hit to uh, Thomas's heart that he becomes ill and eventually he dies. And they receive word. There's a scene where he's in the White House and they receive word. They get this letter that Thomas, their boy, has died. 
and John Adams with a re resolute face, played by Paul Giamatti, who's just an incredible actor, he says, I, I will not forgive him. I still, even the son's dead, he says, I still will not forgive him. When I watch that, I think to myself, okay, let's say if, if Noble went and did something horrible like that, even if, I met, even if I feel the feelings, even if I might be tempted, even if I might be repulsed, I will never, I've made a decision in my character. I would never disown my, my boy, ever. Ne never, 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 ever. And that's a decision I've made in my character that overrides my emotions, that overrides how I feel. That is what the Bible talks about when it's talking about care. Where are the, like if you were digging in the dirt of your heart, where would be the, 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 the rock? King, I can go, the non-negotiable. I will go no further. That's what the Bible is talking about when it comes to good character or versus bad character. The foundation, that type of thing. Nabal, in our story, he is rich and yet he is poor. He's rich in one dimension, but he's very, very poor in character. In fact, the, the word Nabal means fool. That's what it means. I don't know if that was a given name or if he, if he earned it. <laughs> he certainly is going to earn it by the time we're done with this story. You'll see he is, never was a man so aptly named. Um, well, imagine reading this in Hebrew from that culture. You would be reading about this guy who's married, he's rich, he has 3,000 sheep, 1,000. If you were a Hebrew person, you'd be like, wow, this guy is like close to Elon Musk, or you know, he, he's this very rich person, and then you come across his name that means fool. And immediately you're, we're introduced to the first bit of tension in our plot here. We've got a guy that is seemingly successful and yet um, dead on the inside. Um, in fact, the text will say he's evil and harsh in his dealings. Now let's look at his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Now, as bad as Nabal is, is as wonderful as Abigail is. She's great. She's amazing. It says that she was of good understanding, which means that she was wise. She had knowledge. Wisdom is she had knowledge and she knew how to use it. She knew how to apply it. Very uh, strong person mentally. And it also says that she was beautiful of appearance. That phrase, beautiful in, in appearance, is only used of two other women in the entire Bible. She's one of three that this is used for. It's remarkable. Now, and so when you're reading, the other tension that you get when you're reading this is you, you have to ask yourself, what did a person, how did a person like that end up with a dirt bag like, like Nabal? <laughs> you know, there, there's another contrast. And the answer is, it was an arranged marriage, more than likely. Uh, this is a highly patriarchal society, and likely her parents, knowing that Nabal was rich, wanted to join their family to his wealth, so they arranged that he marry their beautiful daughter. They use her beauty as a commodity. So here's what we learn about Abigail. Sadly, Ag Abigail, in some sense, is seen as a commodity, She's born into, she's subjugated. Someone who is valuable, valued for her beauty and traded like a piece of furniture. Back then, as it is today, a woman of beauty is a woman of power. And society, especially societies ran by men, by powerful men, will pay top dollar for them. And Abigail is living in this kind of a world a world that turns her God-given beauty and wisdom into a, into a liability for her. So, Abigail is wise and beautiful, but she's also oppressed and subjugated. That sets up our story. Let's see what happens. Verse 4, when David heard in the wilderness that uh, Nabal was shearing his sheep, it's payday, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, Go to Nabal and greet him in my name. So go to the feast. Everyone's happy and generous. He's getting paid. God's blessings upon him. Go greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to, uh, to him who lives in prosperity, hey, peace be to you. Peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Greetings. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, by the way, and we didn't hurt them. 
nor was there anything missing from them all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they're gonna tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we we come on a feast day. In other words, hey, it's time to be generous. This is great. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So this is verse nine. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and then they waited. So they say what they, they give the message and they wait. David is, is, here's what David is saying. We've been protecting your stuff. We've been protecting your stuff. We've been protecting your, shep- your shepherds and your flocks these many months and it's time for us to be compensated for that. So he sends 10 guys to Nabal and they say, hi there, we've come in the name of our master David. Hey, peace be to you, we come in peace. Um, We've protected your stuff and we've come to get some back and hey, whatever's on your heart to give would be great. In other words, you would not be as rich as you are if it wasn't for our protection. And so it makes sense, it's only fair that you show a little appreciation right now. Now, you need to understand that David was indeed providing necessary service for, for Nabal. In that day, there were so many bandits from the Philistines and the Amorites and the Midianites who would come in and see a flock of sheep. See, that, in that day, that was like, um, you know, seeing Wells, the Wells Fargo, uh, uh, you know, bug, buggy, armed buggy coming down the, down the way or the train in the Old West, you know, the Pinkertons. It was seeing that out there and there was bandits that would come and want to take that for themselves and because David's guys just David's presence with these 600 trained warriors are in the same area it's just naturally keeping people away as a matter of fact David went out of his way to make this an easy transaction he waits to the right time he waits till harvest time he waited until the sheep were being shorn he hears that Nabal was shearing his sheep and David, uh, he finishes the job, and then, and then, and also David didn't appear to him um, uh, in person out of politeness. David, being a wanted man, showing up might incriminate Nabal. We all remember what happened to Ahimelech the priest. So he sent messengers with a word of peace. This isn't a ransom. This isn't a. Um, this isn't under duress. This isn't manipulation. It's just very honest. He says, "Hey." Um, Peace be on you and your family. What, and, and then he doesn't give a price. He doesn't say, hey, I think we're, pretty, we're worth probably around this much an hour. He just says, hey, we're, we're happy with whatever you decide to give. We trust your character. We trust your generosity. We trust that you're gonna do the right thing. David did everything right in this. And in most situations in scripture, it's not so uh, cut and dry. But at this point, David is... He's shooting straight, but let's see what Noble, or Noble, oops, what Nabal does. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Okay, first of all, David was famous at this point. He knew who, who David was. There are many servants nowadays, he goes on to say, who break away each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men that I don't know where they, where they came from. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came and told these words to David. You can see here how Nabal starts to live up to his name. First he says, who is David, this son of Jesse? Everyone knew who David, in fact, there's like a hit song about him out at this point, you know. Um, Nabal is not saying, I don't know who David is. What Nabal is in effect saying is, I don't care who David is. That's what he's saying. And these 10 guys are probably horrified at this point. These 10 guys are probably going, you don't want to say this, man. There are many servants nowadays, he goes on to say, that break away from their masters. This is him saying he's probably on the run or something. He's probably a runaway slave. He's probably done something. He's, now he's looking for free handouts. And if you want to see the selfish heart of Nabal, just look at how many times he says my in verse 11. This is my bread, my water, my meat. Right there you see a philosophical issue. It's not God that gave this to me or God that blessed me with this. It's mine. It's look what I have done. 
Um, it reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the known world, and he's up on his, um, he's up on his wall, the walls of Babylon, and he says, look at this great kingdom that I have made. It's all about me. And if you know uh, what happens, Nebuchadnezzar loses the kingdom. He ends up, well, he loses more than the kingdom. He loses his humanity. He's out in the field as a brute beast. He loses his personhood. And I think the image is clear. When we begin to take for ourselves, when we begin to think I'm the only one, we become brute. In fact, most of Daniel is about these visions of these kingdoms that become these brute devouring beasts because it's all about them. That's, the, that's what happens when we're not when we don't realize that it all comes from God, this is what's going on with, with Nabal. He's, he's losing himself. Again, this shows Nabal's poverty of character. And in verse 13, then David said to his men, so here we go, David gets word and David says to his men, every man gird on his sword. Get locked and loaded, fellas. So every man girded up his sword and David also girded on his sword. He had a big sword. He had Goliath's sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. So he leaves 200 behind to keep camp and he takes 400 men and justice is coming to Nabal's house. He came in peace the first time. Now he's coming like a lion to bring justice. He's been gypped. David is being taken advantage of and he's going to go make it right. He's seeing red. And he's got the means and the power to make that happen. Uh, interesting that David doesn't show Nabal the same kind of kindness that, um, and long-suffering that he so, showed Saul in the last chapter. Why? <clears throat> I just picture David saying, well, he's not the Lord's anointed. <laughs> you know, Samuel, or Saul, excuse me, he's like, well, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. David's saying, that is not your category, Nabal. You're fair game. Just, you know, strap, strap on your swords, boys. Let's do it. Now, but think of the ramifications if this would have happened. Wouldn't have been a good thing for David, probably. Um, he's acting in his passion and his rage, but David could be disqualified as a king at this point if he goes and slaughters this, this wealthy person. If the word got out, how do you think that maybe Saul would use this against him? How Saul would say, see, Finally, he's not so popular anymore. I can ride this wave. I can spin this news to be against David and turn the whole country against him. This incident could have been used by Saul to prove that David is, this, um, is, is what he always thought he was. So look what happens. Verse 14, now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he insulted them, he reviled them, but the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were, they were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot, that one cannot speak to him. So the servants at this point, this is kind of like the downstairs. They pull Abigail downstairs, you know, um, and they, they say, look, we're all going to get hurt because of this. Notice they don't hear that David has sent an army. They just know how foolish Nabal was. They just, they, they, they do the math themselves. It's obvious to them, this is not good. David did us such a great service while we were out there working. We couldn't have done as great of a job if it wasn't for David's men. It's right for him to ask for something. And now Nabal has just insulted him, insulted him and no doubt harm is determined against us. These servants are powerless. All they can do is tell Abigail. And Abigail has access to the food she has access to Nabal's wealth, and she is very wise and decisive with it. She springs into action. Look at verse 18. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of, of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them up on, on, on donkeys, the big Costco semi-truck she's sending his way. 
And she said to her servants, go on before me, see I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, because, you know, he's a dirtbag, and if she did, it wouldn't have been great. So she's wise. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there was David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now look how, look at her leadership. Look how smart she is. She just thinks, well, what, do, what are David and his men asking for? Well, they're asking for food, provisions, payment for a job well done. It's fair what they're asking for, so she just gives them what's right. And more so, actually, she gives them a lot. What they had, um, what they were giving was pretty staggering. And also, it shows, look how much on hand they had at the house. It shows that Nabal could have given. It wasn't like he was like, well, you know, we don't have enough for us. They had plenty probably to the point where he wouldn't even know it was missing. So now David had said in verse 21, surely in vain. So this is, this is David in his mind while he's going there. You know, he's thinking, surely in vain I have protected all this fellow as in the wilderness so that nothing was missing of all that belongs to him and he's repaid evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David's gonna kill every male that belongs, servant, son, dog, pet, doesn't, whatever it is, he's going to kill every male that belongs, to, that belongs to Nabal. This is David's mindset. He's extremely upset. He's coming to bring justice and wrath. He's being moved by passion at this point. In verse 23, now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted and she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed to the ground. Think of this picture. Try to understand how this would have appeared to David. The contrast here. David is furious and set on murdering Nabal and his whole household. You can imagine there probably wasn't much talk as they're writing. I just imagine in my mind that they're writing in intense, angry silence. David's mind is met up. They're going to kill every man except he round he goes you know they go over the hill around the corner through the mountain ravines and there around the corner they don't see a man they see this incredible beautiful upstanding powerful woman it reminds me of that scene in lord of the rings especially if, you, if, if you've seen the extended version or read the books where um uh eowyn is fighting that that the, the really bad um uh Nazgul, you know, the, 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 the kings that are dead now, but they're still, they kill people, you know. And she's fighting and she goes, you, and he, but she's dressed like a guy, you know. And so they're fighting and she's fighting this supernatural dark creature that even Gandalf can't stand up to. Even Gandalf doesn't stand a chance with him. Remember, Gandalf comes and he shatters Gandalf's, um, he shatters his shaft. And, you know, and so there she, and he says, he hits her. And, and hurts her arm, and he says, you fool, no man can kill me. And she slices him, hurts him. She takes off her helmet, and her beautiful hair flows down, and she goes, well, I'm no man. And she gets him right in the face. You know what I mean? It's like, woo! That's kind of what I'm seeing here. David comes around, he's like, I'm going to kill every man. And she's like, I'm no man. And that's precisely where my power comes from. They're making their way, not, 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 not just any woman, but an influential, powerful, wealthy woman, gorgeous woman. Um, she's a woman of high standing. No man, and, and the point is, no man could have done what, she done what she does here. No man could have done this. David just swore an oath that he was going to kill every man. But on the way, he wasn't greeted by a man, he's greeted by a woman. If Nabal had dispatched, not that he would have because he's stupid, but if, if Nabal, Nabal would have dispatched a man, it, this would have gone completely differently. If Nabal would have sent his greatest servant, go negotiate with David and say, I'm sorry, it would have gone differently. Notice how Abigail uses her power. Now, here's the thing. Last week, we had this great study about real power, true power in chapter 24. 
Um, and power was represented by this phrase going on and on, over and over again, the, the hand, you know, God has delivered you into my hand. My hand will not touch you because you're the Lord's anointed. I cut the, row, I cut the corner of your robe, which represented a kingdom. I cut it with the power of my hand. And David turns over his power. Well, here's a, I think that theme is running right through this here. Another example of true power, notice first of all that she shows David great humility. Abigail sees David and she dismounts off her donkey and falls prostrate to the ground before him. She does, what, she does by the way, what David himself did before Saul in our last chapter. Do you remember that? David came out of the cave holding the corner of the robe and he calls to Saul and Saul turns around and it says David fell prostrate before Saul with his face in the ground and said Saul, Saul and started, and started talking to him humbly. This is the Bible's depiction over and over again of true cosmic redeeming power. The kind of power that has the, the power to upend a kingdom and to establish a better one. She humbles herself before him. In fact, this is the most humble greeting a person could give in this culture. She didn't just bow, but she falls to the ground with her face to the dirt. Now, if you're David, this would have stopped you in your tracks. Of course it did. This beautiful woman of high standing is here. And what does she do when she sees me? She bows before me. Women of this caliber in this society didn't usually get down to the dirt and bow down to many people. She was of high standing. Usually it was the other way around. And then when she gets up, here's what she says. She fell at his feet and she said, listen to this. On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. What do we got going on here? We have a fool who deserves wrath and justice being saved by somebody taking on his sin as her own. In this story, Abigail is in the Christ position theologically. True power. She, being a person of power, she's innocent, she's beautiful, and she's willing to take on the sin of a fool. Look how wise she is in that the first thing she does to David is say, blame me. This is what Jesus did. David is out to rightfully judge a sinful man, but someone innocent and powerful steps in through humility and through submission. She knows that there's no honor in killing a woman or a child, so she uses that power. What if Nabal had, had gone to David and said, David, blame me. David would have said, I already do. You know, it would have been different. And then she wants to speak to him, but notice she doesn't do it in a haughty or superior way, but says, please, let your maidservant speak with you. You guys, I think that the most impressive thing in this entire narrative is Abigail's powerful submission to David as an example to us all, an example of Jesus, an example of Christianity, of all Christian people. This is just like Jesus it is the powerful submission of Jesus that redeemed the world. What does Philippians 2 say? That he, sharing the very nature of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus is the most beautiful being in the universe, in the cosmos, filled with power and glory, and yet he lays it down and he submits himself to the death of fools. Now, this is what makes the Bible's version of submission so powerful and so countercultural to what, to what we think today. Um, in our culture, the word submission is a bad, dirty, nasty word. We think of a dominant man telling his wife to shut up and go get him some food or something 
dumb like that. We think of all of history that, is reco- that has recorder, recorded um, men uh, abusing women from the, ver- from the beginning of recorded history. We see all of those things. <clears throat> and it's a word that seems, therefore, to devalue women to being lower than that of man. But to the Bible, submission is the greatest show of true power. It is the greatest show of true power. It is the power that redeems the world. Because men have been so abusive, we tend to only think of submission in terms of superiority and inferiority. But actually, the principles of submission and authority in the Bible are are applied, and really just in life, everybody does this. Every person on this earth is dealing with submission and authority at some level. When we live under our parents' roof, the Bible says we we are to submit to our parents. When we work for someone, God says that we are in authority and we are therefore, we're under authority, we're therefore to submit to them. In marriage, the Bible says that the man is the head of the family and that the wife should submit to him, but that they should both submit to each other. <clears throat> God has given authority to the leaders of, to leaders of a church community that we're to submit to their leadership and authority. Thank you. <clears throat> it's coffee, right? I'm just kidding, joking. It's water. <clears throat> My wife always tells me, you need to drink more water. I say, well, coffee's made with water. Um, On a governmental level, the Bible says that God is the one that gave leaders governmental power and that we're to submit to them. And ultimately, God is our authority. And since he's the one that said all of this, in submitting all of these situations, we're submitting to him. And I don't... I don't think of this as a demotion when it comes theologically because this is the Bible show of power. This is the powerful spot. Every single person has got to reckon with these principles. And it does not necessarily mean superiority or inferiority. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Let's work that backwards. It says the head of Christ is God. Is Jesus less valuable than God? No, they're equal. They're equal. But Christ is showing the power to redeem by being submitted to God. And then later it goes in Ephesians, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands <clears throat> as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he, he is the savior. Do you see what's going on here? How did Jesus save his church and cleanse his church? By submitting to her death. We are the navel in the story. We're the fools. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. There's an equality there. In uh, Genesis, woman is taken out of, she's made of the same material. She's taken out out of the rib of man. They're not, she's not demoted. They're equal. God created both man and women and told them both to be his image bearers, to partner together. After all, no one ever hates his body, Paul goes on to say, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, united to his wife, and the two will become one, the same, of one substance. 
This is a profound mystery, he says, but I'm linking it, I'm talking about Christ and his church. The incredible thing about the gospel that we follow, Christianity, is that someone of immense power bowed down, stooped down, and submitted to us, the foolish ones, so that he could lift us up to his stat and share glory with us. Think of that. Think of that. There's a song that I love that says, um, the highest king of heaven chose to love a fool. I don't understand it, <laughs> it says. The highest king of heaven, Jesus, this powerful, beautiful person, all wise and wisdom, stoops down to, a, to the fools and lifts us up and we become one. And then he says, husbands, you're to tell that same story and wives, you're to tell that same story. It, I'm convinced that the authority and submission piece biblically has to do with the story that the gospel is trying to tell, that the Bible is trying to tell. We all win by losing. We, all, we redeem the world through serving, through bowing, through loving. Like Abigail, Jesus, the most beautiful, wise being in the universe, finds himself in a broken world. He's also subjugated into slavery from his birth. Jesus' bride, us, we're fools who've squandered our character and we deserve justice. But like Abigail, Jesus offers himself for his foolish bride, his foolish spouse. He submits himself to the death that we deserve and bends to us. And this is the power that redeems the universe. See, down here, submission is looked at as a bad thing, an under thing. I think in heaven, I think it'll be, I think those will be high and lifted up. In the book of Isaiah, there's this play on words that Isaiah uses of low and high, low and high. And it, he, he, uh, the biggest sin in the book of Isaiah that he charges against Judah is the sin of pride. You've, and he uses this phrase, this turn of phrase all the time, you've lifted yourself up. You've lifted yourself up. And then at one point it says, only God is high and lifted up. And then it talks about this mysterious servant in Isaiah who has, um, who has been made low in Isaiah 53 and because he has made low, therefore God will highly lift him up. Do you see the, do you see the, what's going on here theologically? Basically, down is up and up is down. That's the idea. Down is up and up is down. The way to exalt is to lower, to, to serve. And that's the position of power. I think in heaven, the, this economy that we struggle with, Will be that we abuse, I think in heaven it'll be flipped right side up. And those that are lowest will follow in, their, in the footsteps of their master Jesus and be high and lifted up. It's the power to save. Philippians 2 goes on to say, in fact, let me just read it. You can see the, you can see the same pattern there. Says, um, is this right? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's brought low, right? Look at, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The, the, the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. How did Jesus become king? By becoming low. How does David become king? By going low. How does Abigail save 
her foolish husband and change the situation and save David in the process by coming low. She says, please forgive your, she said in verse, uh, verse 27, or excuse me, look at how practical this is. Look at verse 25. Please let, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. So she's, you know, she's truthful. <laughs> my husband's a scoundrel. For as his name is, so is he. So she says he's named correctly. <laughs> Ouch. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. So in verse 26, she's very respectful. She tells him that God is the one who stopped him from bloodshed. In doing this, in an indirect way, she's basically telling David that he, what he's doing is wrong. God is stopping you from bloodshed. This makes it easier, to, I guess, to swallow the pride. And look at verse 27. And now his present, uh, this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the, to the young men who follow my Lord. This is brilliant on two levels. First, she, she acknowledges that David has been wronged and that needs to be addressed. So she acknowledges this isn't fair. And that's exactly what she's doing. This needs to be made right, and she does it. David was ripped off, and here's the payment that you deserve. I've come to pay it up. In other words, she's not trying to get him uh, to not kill anyone with smooth words, but she's actually making the wrong right. She's making it right. Secondly, she knows that she can't make this go away by throwing some stuff at David. She can't buy off his peace. David's not doing this for money. Because he, he's doing it because he's just been insulted and there's justice here. That's why she says at the end of verse 27, David, this isn't, this isn't for you but for your men, for your guys. In other words, she's saying, I know you're not doing this for the money. I brought this for your, for your people. And then look at verse 28. She says, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in, in you throughout your days. This is so amazing on her part. She's appealing to David's goodness. She's ap appealing to David by lifting him up instead of beating him down. Boy, can we learn from this. All of us. A lot of people will try to get results out of other people and out of our relationships by insulting them. And sometimes it even works. But we create bitter, hateful people when we, insult, when we insult to get what we want. She builds him up by reminding him that God's hand is on his life. In other words, she's saying, you're better than this, David. This isn't the, this isn't the way. And then she says, David, I know you're here fighting God's battles. It's her way of reminding, like, hey, are you here for yourself? Are you here, for, are you here to do what God wants you to do? What life are you living here? She's treating him basically as he should be, not the way he is right now. This is the way we do this, Christians. In Seattle, in a world of, uh, we, we, we seek to bless first. We, see, we seek to see the good in people rather than focusing on the bad. You know, countercultural that is. Our whole world, especially the social media world, focuses on the negative and beating people down, insulting people, especially in politics. Anything bad happens, it's just we just rip people apart. Abigail shows us a better way, the way of Jesus. I'm gonna start with what I can bless. Doesn't mean you agree with everything, but it means you believe in someone's basic humanity. God has better things for you. Hey, God's hand is on your life. She appeals to his to him as he should be. She has a vision for him. She's saying, this isn't you, David. Come back to who you are. What would life be if we spoke to each other that way? Come back to who you are. Hey, I love you. But this is, you're going the wrong direction here. Let's talk about this. Let's bear with one another. She goes on, yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. Look at the empathy here. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God and the lives of your, of your enemies. He shall sling, sling out as your enemies, he shall sling out like from a stone from a sling. I wonder if that was a, 
I wonder if that made David think about another story where God used a sling and a rock to destroy David's enemies. Notice she recognizes that she puts herself in his sandals. She recognizes, hey, you're being hunted. The stress is insane. But she reminds him that God's gonna protect you. You don't have to take matters into your own hands here. He's gonna provide for you. She's able to remove herself from her own problems and issues, and they were great, and be so selfless and sympathize with David's situation and then minister to him. And she goes on, and it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has, an, and has appointed you ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart for my Lord either that you have, that you have shed blood without cause. In other words, she's saying, she wraps this up so well. She's like, look, do you wanna take the throne innocently? Or do you want to take the throne with some guilt, with some blood on your hands? In other words, David, it's not just about if you take the throne, it's about how you take the throne. Really important. Jesus was the same way. Jesus became king, but not in the way his followers were expecting. They were expecting him to storm into Jerusalem with a great show of power and kick Rome out and take the throne of David by force. Instead, Jesus pulls an Abigail and goes in to serve Jerusalem and get persecuted and dies. And that's how he became king. He was exalted in that way. She's also uh, pointing out that David could either go to the throne with a clean conscience. Oh, yes. Like the way he does it is important. So look at David's response. Then David's, look, David said to Abigail, he basically just melts. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Listen to that word, those, listen to that sentence. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. What kind of language is that? Who did God send to meet us on our road to folly? The sent one. Is Jesus. And he says, and blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord lives who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning, no males would have been left to Nabal. In other words, I was gonna do it too. I was, I'm serious, I was gonna do this. Like I was going for it. So David received from her hand and she, and she, that she had brought for him and, she, and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. You guys, this, this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of real power. This is the way we all should be to each other, to the people around us to our parents, to our bosses, to our husbands, to our wives, to our church leaders, to our government leaders. This is the way the church has the power to change the world. This is how the church upended the, Roman, the Greco-Roman world through service, through selflessness, through generosity, through giving at great expense to ourselves, through humbling. And it's so hard for us to grasp this because we grow, we're, we're, we're American. I love being an American, by the way. I love that. But part of what comes to our, with our culture is this kind of, it, it's, you know, it, power. I'm the master of my own ship. I'm the creator of my own destiny. I'm gonna go out and make it happen myself. I use my power and I manipulate and I step on people. Don't, it's not personal, it's business. I'll step on people to get to the top and look what, who's at the top of the heap. We all do this. And Jesus shows up on the scenes and he says, he says to his disciples, you've heard how the, how the rulers of this world do it. We're gonna do it different. For the son of man did not come to, to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is how I want all my people to be. And to the degree that we understand that Jesus has done this for us, that he bent 
to us, that he submitted to my death on the cross, what we're going to celebrate today, to that degree, it will flow out of our lives too. If, if this kind of submission has the power to change my heart, because this is the power that changed my heart. It was this humble, kind, beautiful power that changed my heart. If that's got the power to change my life and change the course of my life and change me completely to make me born again, then that's the power I want to release on this world. I'm, I, I understand it. I've experienced it. Listen, I want to warn us here. There is a brand of Christianity going on that maximizes power in our culture. And I just want to ask you to be suspicious of it. That's all I want to ask I want to ask you to think twice. That's all I want to do. When you hear this sense of um, panic, if we don't, then. If you hear insult, these stupid so-and-sos, I want you to be suspicious of that. Read Isaiah 53. And look at the leadership of Jesus. Look at the leadership of Abigail. Compare it to some of the leadership coming out of Western Christianity right now. And I just want you to be honest. Just be honest. Does this match? Does this match? And is there a more powerful way? I think so.